Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Ward and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast where I can promise that you'll always hear a Yorkshire accent and we'll never have any adverts. We chat with our guests about peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships and happiness because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first sprint triathlon, set a personal best at your next race or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has real significance. They are all principles which underpin our SWAT triathlon community where we have almost 150 like-minded members and if you choose to join you'll be able to access winter training and summer racing plans for a whole variety of races with weekly training volumes and catering for all levels of experience. So I don't have as many elite athletes on this podcast as some other publications but when I do I make sure they have a good story to tell. This week's guest, Will Clark, I got to know when he was a young man just starting out on his triathlon journey. Since then, he's enjoyed a full career as a professional triathlete, representing Great Britain at the 2008 Olympics and then turning his hand to racing 70.3 and Ironman events. Will's now a full-time triathlon coach and it was really interesting to chat with him about his journey and how these experiences have shaped his current occupation. So let's get right to it and hear from Will. Uh, welcome to the show, Will Clark. Hey, thank you very much. Yeah, good. Good to be on. Good to be on with you. Good to catch up as well. Yeah, life's a little bit colder for both of us at the moment, isn't it? From the last time we chatted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last time we uh, last time we chatted, we were having a beer in um, in uh, on the rocks or Huggos, whichever bar it was. And uh, yeah, it's good. Yeah, but um, back here, back here now, back into the winter. Uh, it was a good trip in, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. I enjoyed being there. Um, I was quite lucky to be there because. Uh, one of uh, one of the Saudi athletes that I coach, um, fortunately, footed the bill and um, allowed that to happen. But it was a uh, it was good. Enjoyed that trip a lot. Well, we're going to talk a bit later about whether we'll be going back to Kona. That's a whole new subject that's blowing up at the moment. But um, there's there's been a big there's been a long journey. So I, I will uh, to get to this point. I've known you since you were in the Talent ID program right back in the beginning of the two thousands, just after the. Just after the Sydney Olympics, it was a new initiative from uh, British Triathlon, which was great for you, wasn't it? Um, you were in the East Midlands at that time, and then you went to work with Dan Salcedo at Loughborough. Yeah, yeah, that's where that's pretty much where we began. I mean, it was maybe not the first um, kind of national camp that we did, but one of the, but yeah, it was a uh, yeah, those were it was it was all all very new and fresh, and um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of us, a lot of a lot of good friends, really enjoyed. Uh, Really enjoyed um, having you guys around as well. Um, not just saying that because you're here, but it was a yeah, it was good times. That was in Cyprus. That was. I remember that camp. Yeah, um, that was the year before the that was the year before the Athens Olympics, wasn't it? So the British Triathlon were going to use this, the Athens venue as a holding um, place and a pre pre Olympic training place. And our camp was a bit of a um, a recce, wasn't it, to see what the facilities were like and the riding. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was it was great. Well, I haven't I haven't been back since, but it, it seemed to be a great place to train. And it's, uh, I think there's some pretty good cycling in Greece. Um, this was in Cyprus, but it was, um, yeah, it was great. Um, really enjoyed it. It was a good place to train. I, I can I can remember. Yeah, I remember that, um, for where I think we were in Paphos, weren't we, or somewhere along that, or was it Coral Beach? Yeah. I think we were at, and um, there was some nice riding along the coast. And then if you turned inland, um, it got it got quite hilly, didn't it? And I remember being. Being on a group with, I don't know if you and Dan Brooke were there, but I was riding along trying to control the pace, and it was really easy for me when we were on the flat. And then as soon as it turned inland, um, 
you lot all scampered away and I, uh, yeah, I was left um, on my chin strap, really. Yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah. Yeah, no, it's good, yeah. Yeah, lots of good camps. I think that's the only camp that we did together, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't know if um, we, we did some combined camps in the north, Jack and I, um, with some other groups. We I know we did some stuff with Steve Lumley, but I don't know if um, I don't know if um, you ever came up with Dan Salcedo to join with some camps. We might have done some national stuff somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a um, I was southern. I was um, I was kind of Cambridge Cambridge straight Loughborough base at that time. So uh, yeah, didn't didn't fit in with the northern northern lot then. <laughs> but you were, you were good friends with Dan Brooke, weren't you? And you and Dan um, raced well together and uh, raced together for quite a while until he sort of you passed. Uh, sort of went in separate ways yeah he was um he's um for for the uh for the people that are watching he's um he's simon ward alumni of me as well um you were his you were you were his coach from um for most of his uh triathlon career i guess uh yeah he's i stuck in contact with him he's in um in uh dubai now um i was i was one of the ushers at his wedding actually which is about four or five years ago now um so still still really close to them but he was my kind of uh he was my he was our training partner training partner you know, all of us had a training partner when we went to um, Beijing Olympics. We could bring bring someone along for the ride to to train with and hang out. Um, yeah, so he was he was he was, a, he was a great lad. Really enjoyed um, enjoyed have, enjoyed having him around to train with. Well, um, um so um, Loughborough, you were uh, it was an exciting time, wasn't it? Um, around the early two thousands, because triathlon, certainly the shorter course uh, version of racing, it had transitioned into draft legal racing. And uh, that was just starting to take off. Um, we had some we had some good athletes back then, and you were right there as a youngster, sort of coming into that. So it must have been a really, really exciting time for you. And maybe, you know, when you were at Loughborough University, and um, seeing that there, there was a, an amazing place that you could go with your life, um, rather than just yeah. sort of doing triathlon and having to go and get a job. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, we're. I mean, we. I my triathlon journey started when I got put on. I got selected for the. Uh, world-class start squad at the time it was called um the program had been up and running a few years so you already had yeah you already had um top uh, top athletes like tim don and simon lessing and people like that who were all on who were all on um all on performance funding um but we were but we were kind of yeah it was it was starting to really get organized at the at the, at the bottom grassroots kind of end of that um yeah and we got we ended up with about like a selection of 20 25 people or something like that 20 um youngsters who were all kind of supported with a coach and had um had some had some kind of support from uh from yeah from funding and um I think for me that was that was the first time where just as I was fizzling out in my you know as, as a as a as a kid swimmer and um runner I don't know, that was the first time that I guess someone kind of yeah I I done sorry I'd done a few triathlons before I'd done like a couple of um local kids triathlons and I just wanted to do more of it that's all I wanted to do loved it but but there wasn't a lot going around, so um, this was a chance to uh, to kind of get into it, take it seriously, travel travel a little bit with it, see where you can go, um, race on race for Great Britain as a as a junior. Mm. And I think I got I got passed on to Dan Salcedo, who was my who was my first coach, and he kind of having that having someone kind of high up uh, believe in me as a as a youngster mm-hmm. was kind of the nudge the nudge that I needed to. Uh, to really uh, crack on with it, take it seriously, throw everything at it, um, and that's where I started. Really, that's you know, within a couple of years, I'd, I'd got enough cycling in the legs that I was able to kind of compete at um, world junior level, European junior level, and um, yeah, selected, 
got selected for my first for my first one. At that time, I remember as you were a junior, you there was you and Ollie Freeman, and Ollie. Uh, I remember Ollie was always a little bit faster than you, wasn't he? As a runner, he was just always getting the better of you in races, and yet you were the one who went on to have a, a pretty good career, and Ollie didn't. And I, I, I often think about those formative years and the talented athletes yeah. we had in the junior program, and. and what was the difference between people who sort of managed to make it stick and those who didn't? Was it their was it their approach? Was it just was it just a matter of luck? Was it if you ever talked to Dan Plews, he was saying, no, things, you know, distances changed when he went up an age group and he just got injured. And so, so that's the sort of bit of bad luck you don't need. Um, so what, what do you think was the difference for, for say for you and Wheeler and Dan Brooke, of course, who we talked about earlier, who sort of, you know, at at 23, 24, made a decision not to continue in the sport full-time. Yeah, I mean, Ollie, Ollie Freeman was a very, very talented lad. I think you can ask my, you can ask me, but you can ask Alistair Brownlee as well, like how, how, good, how good Ollie mm. Freeman was. He was, he, was, he, was, he, was better, he was better than both of us. Yeah. More talented than both of us. Like he was, I couldn't live him. I, I really, I was, I was able to compete with him somewhat because I trained my, I trained my nuts off and he was kind of on the, on the soft program, if you like, a little bit, to be honest. So he was, I was throwing, you know, I was, I was basically training like an adult and he was training, training, like training like a kid still. So I could, I could compete with him. He was still better. Um, but I think I, I really, really wanted to do it. I really, I love the sport. I saw this as a massive opportunity, almost life-changing. I mean, it was life-changing in the end because, you, look, you know, look where I'm now. I, I had a whole career of, a whole career of triathlon. I've, I've, I'm coaching a great, great group of athletes, successful group of athletes. And it's a, yeah, this carved the way for my whole life. And I just, I just really wanted to do it. And I think, I think, um, Ollie, for example, he had, he's a very intelligent lad. I think he had other options. Um, he, he went to, he went to Cambridge, um, to study shortly after he retired. Um, and I think, yeah, I don't think he wanted to do it. I think he had, he had, he had much more other options than me in more interesting options for him. And that's what he ended up pursuing. And I think it, it got to that stage for him where it, start to get more difficult and start to get a lot more serious. And he, you know, he, I think he realized then that it's not, I'm not sure I want to go down this road, but mm. speak, speak to Alistair or someone like that. They, they were just, there was, you know, they're just desperate to do it. They loved it. And they just, they just wanted to, it's, it's all they wanted to do. And that's kind of sim, kind of similar for me, really. Yeah. I, well, there's two things here. I remember that, that training camp we were talking about in Cyprus, I think we had a little test triathlon there. And I think that, I, I think that might've been the first time, you beat Ollie in a head-to-head race there. You got the better yeah. of him on the bike and oh, you got a better transition and it was only a short race and he didn't catch you up. And I, that was the time I always felt then that that was what gave you confidence that you could beat him. Um, and and so things went on from there and developed. Um, and also, I, I recognise what you're saying about um, you know yourself and Alistair and Johnny because you know, I saw them a bit closer than most people working with Jack in Leeds. Um they wanted it from a young age, didn't they? That was it. And Alistair, you know, went the opposite way to Ollie. He had a place at Cambridge and then came back to Leeds to produce triathlon. So, um, and it's it's been good for both of them as well. Yeah, yeah, they're um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, and 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 they still they're, and they still have that same desperation now. I think the chassis the chassis is not the same as as it used to be. They're they're a little bit older. They've got other stuff going on, but essentially they're still desperate to do it. They're still desperate to win. And that's mm-hmm. what's, that's what, and that's, and, that, and that's what it takes to compete at the level that they did, you know, that desperation in, in training, that the fear of, of getting, of getting beaten. Um, I could have, I could have, I could have, I could have done with a bit, a bit more of that myself. Maybe. I think they also, they, they, they love, 
they love being out, but they genuinely love the training. They love being out in the rain for, 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 for four hours. Whereas, whereas I'm thinking a bit too much about it and probably, 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 probably used to give it a swerve or, or do or do a couple of hours. <laughs> but they, um, that's what's made them. That's what's that's what's got them to where they are now, really. And those are the things that make the difference at that level, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you ha- you have to enjoy it. That's for sure. Otherwise, otherwise you're screwed. But you have to put in a lot of training and a lot of effort over a long, long period of time. And yeah. They've done there. That they talk about. They, you talk about the ten thousand hour hour rule. Yeah, they, they must be. They, they must be pushing that three times over. I'm probably pushing that twice over. Um, yeah. Mm. So there you go. But you you were all lucky in term. Not not lucky as in you got some lucky breaks because I know how hard you all worked. But you were lucky in terms of the age you were at, the fact that the sport was developing, the fact that British triathlon had a um, a coaching program and an infrastructure that was better than most countries. And also we had the, we had from 2005, the knowledge that the Olympics was going to be coming to London, which was also an impetus, wasn't it? And so just being around at that time was just, you know, that was tremendously lucky. And also you had, you know, where you were, you, you met Dan Salcedo and you were able to access the performance program or the performance center at Loughborough we had the center start in Leeds and Jack and Malcolm were there and just other things it was just it sometimes it is about being in the right place at the right time isn't it yeah for sure yeah definitely um I've, I've definitely been I've definitely I've definitely benefited from from that a few times I'd say but I can remember yeah I can, you know not 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 long after I started at Loughborough um dance uh the performance director at the time sat sat me and Ollie down and said, you know, we're, we're as you, as you, as you've heard, yes, you've heard London, London 2012 Olympics is coming. Um, we're we're going to give you some extra funding of like five, five, 5,000 pounds a year grant to help towards your training and stuff. And it was all, it was all really, really focused around that. And it was on the, it was, it was on people's radars for a long time. Um, yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I tried, I, Definitely put my. I definitely threw myself at it to try and get that slot in London. I I, I got Beijing, but not London, unfortunately. But um, I think it was a, you know, if we talk about right place at the right time, um, what and what what an amazing opportunity for Alistair and Johnny to be pretty much in their prime, you know, in 2012 when yeah. the you know the a home Olympics is happening, mm. um, and they went and won it. You know, they threw everything at it, did did everything that they possibly could to put themselves in in the best position, set mm. themselves up. And uh, yeah, that's uh, and they've, they've done it now. So, do you do you think that? I mean, I mean, you you were sort of a couple of you're a couple of years older than Alistair, aren't you? Do you did you ever think? Oh no, you know, I'm just about coming to my prime, and I hear these two kids coming up behind me. Or did did them being in the sport spur you on and sort of push you to greater heights? Um, I don't think so. I'm not sure it pushed pushed me to greater heights. I was I was training my nuts off at that time, and um, you know, I was I was kind of I was vying for that vying for the Olympics, but it would have been a hell of a lot easier if there was just one Brownlee and not two. I think I would have <laughs> I would have gone there. So you know, it's it's not great that you got two semi unbeatable guys um, lining up and uh, you know competing for free competing for free Olympic slots. Um, no, it's um, I mean it definitely it, it it definitely spurred me on. Like I wanted to like I threw everything out trying to get that Olympic spot. I spent um, I spent the two years before the two winters before living in Australia and we did a hell of a lot of training that that was the that was me in peak shape um for sure and I never quite got back to that because uh, I think I used I used all those eggs um threw all those eggs in that basket uh, and I think there's only so many years you can do that mm. um you know 
I used, I think in Australia, we were doing around, you know, getting on for 35 hours a week um, with one, with one full rest day a week as well. So 35 hours in six days, that's a hell of a lot of training. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we, we were, we were, we were, we were rolling that for a long period of time. And if you asked me to do that in the past 10 years, you know, once I started Ironman, not possible, no chance. Haven't, 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 haven't got the energy for it. Almost haven't really, 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 really got the will for that either. So mm. it's, um, yeah, definitely for everything out, trying to qualify for that one and trying to be as good as good. I suppose if you've given it everything you can and you've done what you can, then that's, that isn't it. You can look, you can look back at that with a great deal of pride and say, well, you know, I tried, I tried my hardest and I tried my best and that's all anyone can do. And that's yeah, all, sure. and that's, and you know, as a coach, you'll know that that's all you can ask from your athletes as a coach is you just give it what you can and yeah, make sure you can't hold yourself to account for anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's let's talk about when you were training. Then I mean, you're a coach now. You've had a long career. You've moved through the distances. But if you were starting again, um, is there anything you might do differently with your training? I'm thinking there might be some younger athletes listening to this now and thinking, oh yeah, I should go out there and train 35 hours a week, you know. And they've got the Brownleys and yourself to hold up there as a template for that. But is that is that the re- is that what you'd be recommending now when you look back on that career? No, not really. I mean, there is, I think I was quite, one thing I'll say is I was quite, I was quite, I was quite young and immature then, you know, I was, uh, you know, doing these, doing these big races around the world, you know, I went to Olympics when I was 23. I was, I was just a kid basically, to be honest. Um, I don't think I've, I probably, 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 I think I realized what opportunity I had, but I was also, I was probably, probably trying to go at it a bit too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very much, I mean, in my in my own coaching now, I'm very much in the school of yeah. It's it's all about consistency, and if you can't be consistent, then you're trying to buy off more 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 than you can chew. Right. And if I look if I look at my old training diaries, for example, um, you know, especially around yeah, kind of mid twenties to uh, yeah, like early maybe twenty two to twenty eight, let's say, it was all um, it was trying to do thirty thirty five hours a week as well, but you couldn't really do it, and you you try, but you but you but you but you but you end up cracking cracking down the line um and that for me would be uh, missed days maybe going a night out and uh and drink too much and, and uh you know because you're trying to trying to trying to trying to, trying to do a bit too much and this and it's not really working um so i think you need to you you, you for sure need to train hard you need to train a lot as well mm. um but you have to be able to handle it and you have to be consistent and i think you have to be wh- one of the things that changed me and changed my mindset is i went to i stepped out of the british system i went to a belgian coach i used to be coached by luke van Leer. uh i was put on to him because he was yeah i was i was racing for a belgian team and he's um he's for people who don't know he he won ironman hawaii twice in the 90s and he he kind of showed me basically to trust your talent and to and showed me what i could do off of less Mm-hmm. I think that was that was kind of perfect for me because it was it was it was it was, it was about the time where I couldn't train I couldn't tr- I couldn't train train crazy hard anymore and he, and he showed me how to train smart doing the right things at the right time and I think that's been super beneficial for uh, for me now training amateur athletes who are, who are time poor mm. because now I can I can really I can really kind of figure out how to get them uh, better off of less because they haven't got 30, 30, 30 35 hours training but they've got somewhere between ten and twenty. Mm. Um, and it's, I think that's really helped with my, uh, with, with, with my own coaching. You, my recollection is though, that you were pretty robust as a, as a younger athlete. You didn't get injured a great deal, did you? 
No, I just when when the the more you train, the tighter I used to get, and the quality used to drop off. Okay. Um, so, you know, whereas when I was racing IT, I used to try and do about 100, 120 k running a week. You know, when I was racing Ironman, I used to train sixty or seventy k per week. You know, <laughs> running, and it's uh, and I, you know, I, I was still good. I could I could run a two forty off the bike pre carbon shoes, um, which is one of the best at the time. But it's um, yeah, it just kind of shows it's not all about it's not all about flogging yourself in volume. Um, mm. I think it's a much more holistic picture and trying to look over your look after your over, overall health and longevity and and look and the training that you that you do do is of, is of high quality that's much more important than um flogging yourself with miles that you can't absorb yeah i i i have to agree with you that that's that's the biggest thing i think isn't it that that i've um noticed and that i've really come to understand over the last maybe 10 years i I think i probably understood it before but as i've got older and experienced these things myself i think i've i've understood it more for other athletes now it's this we talk about biopsychosocial it's like you've got the biology bit which most coaches concentrate on but particularly age group athletes but let's not elite athletes have this as well you know they've got other stuff going on they've got stuff that's going on in the head yeah, and they've got stuff that's going on and around them. So just because you're an elite athlete, whether you're playing in the World Cup now or you're playing in the, you know, you go to the Olympics or you're a professional triathlete, you can't help but be affected by the cost of living crisis, what's going on in the Ukraine, um, and other stuff around. And if you're a sensitive person, yeah. those things can affect you. And as a coach, you have to recognise that and then tailor your training to allow people to sort of a little bit of space, don't you? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I, I agree with you totally. Yeah. Um. I think uh, you know, I was listening to somebody saying, well, these these footballers, you know, they should put all this stuff about this bad publicity about Qatar out of their mind. But they're individuals, they're humans, they, they, and they go on social media a lot. And so it's really difficult not to be affected by um, other stuff unless you're, unless you're an automaton. Yeah, I guess it's, um, it's very hard for them as well, having, having that pressure to uh, make a statement. Um, you know, it's not, it's not really their job, but they do have a massive platform to make a difference. Mm-hmm. um so so they feel they feel under pressure to do that but it's a that's part of that's part of being in the position that that's part of being in the position that they're in i guess so you if you went back to do this again then you'd you'd do less training you'd focus on <coughs> consistency on trusting your talent and anything else you might do differently um you know what it's it's funny because the, the, the sport's come a long way back when i was racing it it was you're kind of focusing on getting your engine as, as strong as you can as, and as fast as you can. We didn't really focus that much on the smaller details. And if you look back at, I mean, if I, if I look back at my, at my, uh, the position that I'm riding my bike in at the, um, at the Beijing Olympics, it's, it kind of makes me cringe because the, right. uh, you know, the gains, the gains you can make and stuff like that, we, we didn't even realize at the time. Um, I mean, it is a level playing field in, in that respect, but you just, if you can go back and uh, apply what you know now, then that's almost the one percent that that you're missing to make a real difference. So give, and us, it's, give, uh, give give us an example of that, then, um, Will. Well, I mean, if you, I think I, uh, I raced Des Moines um, Des Moines World World Cup, which was it was two hundred thousand dollars for the win. Um, the prize money rolled down to about twentieth. I finished about six seconds behind, no, sixteen seconds behind Tim Don, who finished, um, who won the two hundred thousand dollar prize check. Uh, I mean, I can think of countless ways where I could kind of find those 16 seconds to to be to be winding up finishing next to Tim, mm-hmm. um, which you didn't do at the time. So it could be anything from uh, 
you know, figuring out a bit about, you know, maybe running with better technique, uh, better strength and conditioning program and taking that, taking that bit seriously. Um, all the things we know, you know, that's not just lifting weights and that we can do in the gym just to improve performance. Um, you know, uh, and I guess the main one really is probably uh, being more efficient on the bike, um, making better equipment choices, improving your body position on the bike. Stuff like that. There's all sorts of things like that that people didn't really focus on at the time, and and that rolls down from um, from triathlon right right the way down to cycling. I mean, you've got Lance Armstrong was uh, was the uh, the big dog at the time then, and his position on the bike was terrible. <laughs> you know, and that's the smartest, well, probably most well informed um, guy in the peloton. So I'm um, just want to pick up on that a bit more. Then, so a, a lot of people will be looking saying, "Well, you, if you got off the pack in the league group, then surely you were doing everything." Um, that you needed to but I guess you, what you're going to say is that if you'd been a bit more aero if you'd been a bit more technically efficient then you could have got off in that pack having used a little bit less energy and that then gives you more to run better yeah exactly yeah yeah so it's all about I mean back in those days I mean the, the race was kind of it was a, it was a little bit of a procession sometimes on the bike mm-hmm. compared to now it was much more uh, much more emphasis on the run so it, it was it was very much about making the front swim pack hiding or of course, tr- trying to make a difference and trying to get away and establish a breakaway and get a bit of a jump on the run. Mm-hmm. Um, but for but for me, really, it was about it was it was about hide, hiding your way in the pack and then getting on the run as fast as possible to run as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. So anything you can do to make yourself uh, give yourself an easier time there would um, yeah would uh, would reflect will be reflected in your, in your run split. Do you do you work with any ITU athletes now? I don't. I don't at all. No, and I, no, I've I've hardly worked with any. They're all um, they're all seventy point three and Ironman athletes, really. Mm-hmm. And the ones the ones that the ones that were racing kind of started as a uh, Olympic distance or sprint athletes that have been converted to to middle distance. Well, let's let's talk about that then. So you went from WTS. At what point did you make the transition? Then was it after Beijing, or did you carry on doing WTS racing for a little bit longer? Yeah, I raced um, when, basically when I didn't qualify for 2012 um, Olympics, uh, which was a bit of a I, I, I won't I won't bother going into it, but it was a bit of a bit of a devastating one for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a bit of a political one, uh, so that was a that was a big that was a big kick in the nuts for me, and that was when I I thought right I'm going to go to go to long course for the second half of my career, um, and it was um, it was interesting because back in those days we didn't. Um, I hadn't touched a time trial bike. I hadn't sat on a time trial bike until I was until I started long course racing. And of course, you assume you are just going to going to hop on that thing and um, and be uh, be as strong as you were on the road bike and as competitive as you were. But I got an absolute kicking, you know, right from the off. I, I couldn't believe how fast the guys in Ironman could ride um, could could ride those bikes. Um, and I couldn't believe how much time they could put into you if you were if you were if you were struggling. So I used to get off the bike in a seventy point three with a ten minute plus deficit and then of course it doesn't matter how fast you run you're not going to catch catch the uh the, catch the front guys so um so the first year was a bit was a bit of an interesting one actually um and kind of kind of good story um you know I've, i'm fairly well connected in the in the triathlon circuit so you know one of the, one of my one of my friends and colleagues put me on to the bmc beef bmc uh place team manager which is now um yeah two times bmc two times you if people were so it's the it's the team that chelsea sodaro um races for who won and cat matthews etc but anyway when that first team team first started um they contacted me in my first year first year racing long course and um i'd actually 
the birth, um, Claire just, uh, yeah, it's also, it was shortly after Claire became pregnant um, with our first child, which is obviously, it was, it was a bit of a shock because we, um, you know, it's the first, uh, I didn't really have much, have much income uh, because I, I changed from short course to long course. So I wasn't really, I was racing very much prize, prize check to prize check. And then all of a sudden, um, we're going to have a young, a young, uh, a little baby boy. I'm not sure, not not quite sure how to fund it. And about, and about a week later, Bob contacted me from BMC and said, uh, "We, we want to get, get you over to Belgium and test, um, get you in the lab and see what see what's under the bonnet, and then potentially we'll offer you a contract afterwards." And and, and then I went on to race to race like shit for um, for the next kind of three or four races. And I thought I've screwed it now. I've had this ma- amazing opportunity to write, to get a good contract with BMC, and I now they're not going to be interested. And then and then all of a sudden. Um, all of a sudden, I managed to blag a race because um, basically uh, I did St. Croix, St. Croix Centre Point Three, which is in the Caribbean, and pretty much um, I got out of the water seventh. Um, didn't pass anyone on the bike. In fact, I got passed by two people. So you would have thought I was ninth. I actually got off the bike in third because everyone had punctured in, in, in the rain. <laughs> so then um, I managed to trot round to a second off to a second place in St. Croix, and then all of a sudden Bob piped up on. Um, on email, I said, "Right, come, come to Belgium next week and come and get test, come and get tested. We'll see, we'll see what you got." Uh, so I did that. Had a great test. He gave me a contract, and that's where I stayed for the next um, for the next six years of my long course career, which is incredibly lucky because I know how hard it is to pick up sponsors, especially these days. Mm. Well, let's talk about being a professional triathlete. So I've known, you know, I. It's quite a few people that I've known over the years. You probably know most of them who've been on the face of it doing quite well. I mean, Dan Brooke was one. Dan and you were, you know, at the same age, racing together, Great Britain under 23. Um, I think you you probably had the legs on Dan on the run, didn't you? But swim and bike, you were probably a bit better. Dan probably used to lead you out of the swim. And then on the bike, you were pretty evenly matched. Um, but Dan had some trouble with payment for prize money and uh, a couple of people letting him down and and that sort of, punctured his punctured his balloon a little bit didn't it and his enthusiasm um i know a couple of guys who were racing in scotland i can't think of the names now who were finishing just off the podium in 70.3 events but were still struggling like you said going from paycheck to paycheck and you know you get to a race and if you don't finish on the top three you're ending up coming home out of pocket somewhat um we we probably shouldn't talk about going to Hawaii these days because um, that is somewhere where you could come back seriously out of pocket unless you have a good race. But so how did you make ends meet financially? You know, um, you, you had funding for British Triathlon for a while. Um, yeah. So, um, so when I was with 2012 on the horizon for most of my short course career, there was always that, um, that kind of buzz, buzz around triathlon. So, you know, really, I was kind of one of the lucky ones. I was, I was kind of, I was, that was my prime, really. Um, various brands believed me. Um, people knew who I was in the sport. And um, I just had, I had a, two or three half decent sponsors a year, plus funding, plus, plus prize money. And that's, uh, you know, I was, I was racing at a decent level. So I used to get, used to get half decent prize money. Um, you know, life, my triathlon life didn't really cost me anything because because uh, because of funding and also British triathlon would also pay your pay your way to races and stuff like that. So that was not really a problem. Um, you know the other the other really good one was French Grand Prix and Bundesliga. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of a lot of a lot of young ITU athletes rely on those as well to um, to kind of to pay the bills. So um, 
so that was uh that was also really good um, Will, just let me just because um, I, I guess these days we don't really hear about the French Grand Prix, but I know Dan and some of the others used to have contracts with the team. You go down there, you're pretty much racing all, every weekend, weren't you? Going down to France a couple of times a month, coming back, racing on the um, home circuit and then the international circuit. Um, but I think everybody that I, I knew then loved going to France for those races because they were a lot of fun as well as quite lucrative financially. Yeah, they're really good. Yeah, there is. Um, you know, typically you'd have a there'd be a team that you'd, you'd, you'd have about eight athletes on each French Grand Prix team roster. Um, I think typically the town the town is the uh, funds the team plus plus a few sponsors. Um, so yeah, pretty much everyone on the circuit when when, when I was racing race race for race French Grand Prix and used to uh, used to pick up um, pick up a bonus from the team if you did well plus a normally a bit of a um, a bit of a base salary as well. Um, so that's good. And Bundesliga was the same sort of gig. Apart from when you race Bundesliga, you uh, you stay in you stay in much nicer hotels, which is nice. <laughs> but French Grand Prix was always some of the worst hotels that that you'd uh, that you stay in. <laughs> okay, do you miss those days then? Um, I do because there is, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of good memories. You know, I have a lot of a lot of close. I mean, some of some of my rivals, for example, um, you know, you'd see them see them maybe see them maybe ten times a year, five times a year. Or World Series racing, and then another five times a year, maybe for French Grand Prix, and they end up being close friends. Like some of them came to my wedding, for example. Um, and one of the sad things, actually, when you retire, is you just you just never cross paths anymore, and, unless mm-hmm. one of you makes a massive effort to go to mm-hmm. the other one's the other one's country. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's for sure good times, and um, yeah, yeah, made 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 a lot made a lot of good friends by doing that. Did when you were on. Um your BMC contractor when you had funding for British triathlon, did, did you ever feel like there was huge pressure every year to, to meet a certain standard? Otherwise you were going to get cut from the contract or did you have a bit of security in terms of all that? Cause you, you talked about those first four races where you were thinking, oh, I've blown it now. Um, no, yeah. did, could you, could you ever relax or were you, did you always feel like you had to perform at the next event? When I was racing, um, when I was racing ITU, I had I had I had decent enough decent enough um, enough salary and decent enough savings that I didn't have to worry really. Um, I was also too young and, and immature to to worry about it anyway. Um, when I when I started long course racing, I worried I, I used to worry a lot more about money and security because you haven't got British triathlon behind your back. All, all all of a sudden you're doing this on your own off your own back, and you need to make it work. And that's kind of it was kind of it was quite exciting times really. Um, you know, there's a certain buzz about living from paycheck to paycheck as well, because it's like it's almost like you're you're gambling with your body, you know. And obviously, if you do well, there's a massive buzz. So the highs the highs are the highs are high, and the lows are, are very low. Like I've finished many races where, you know, you've been in, you've been in tears at the at the finish line because you've you you put a line to it, it, it didn't go to plan, and uh, you know you've you spent <laughs> you know two or three thousand pounds to go there. I did a um, one of my best one of my best friends had a stag do in Vegas. Um, I signed up for it. I paid my deposit, and then I kind of realised, well, what are you doing? Now, why are you going to Vegas when you, you should be focusing on you on your on Ironman Texas and doing a good job there? So, I politely declined my uh, the, the invite to go to Vegas, and I went to race in the um, in the US as well. Um, got super fit. Went to Boulder before you know spent a fortune in Boulder car rentals. You know that's a that's a good five thousand dollar campaign there. Anyway, went to Boulder, took took the family out, went to Texas. Um, great swim, great bike. First thing, care the run didn't feel quite right. Pulled out. 
And then my friends in in in, in, in Vegas messaged me. Said, you should come to Vegas then. What's the point? <laughs> I was like, I was, I was like, yeah, you're right. And that and there was a complete waste of time. But then, but then you know, you know, this is how it goes. Then I went home. I I won Outlaw half. I think I saw. I, I can remember seeing you there because you're always there. Yeah. And then and then I flew to Brazil the next day. I got second in in that race. Flew home, won Outlaw half again. So it's kind of it's it's a real roller coaster, if you know. And that's kind of that kind of perfectly sums up how it is as a pro really it's um it's compromise it's it's gambling and um you're kind of never sure how it's going to turn out but as long as you keep on doing your best and you keep on keep on pushing forward if eventually it works out really but but you talk about gambling with your body and you talk about the stresses that you've got about you know making making ends meet and if you don't win the next race perhaps you haven't got money to uh, pay the mortgage i remember talking to um, some friends of mine have been out to portugal and they bumped into alan woodward and uh, yeah. they were saying, oh, it must be great being a pro athlete, you know, a new bike every year, sponsors, you know, getting to travel around all these races. And he said, well, actually, I don't get a new bike every year. And if I don't come in the top three today, I'm going to go home and I have to race next weekend in order to pay my mortgage. Um, you know, it's not quite yeah. as lucrative and exciting as you think. And I-, I wonder how that plays into how you coach your elite athletes as well, because I know, I know you're coaching some of those and they have those same worries, don't they? Yeah, I mean, quickly, quickly going back to it. I mean, I have to say, like, I was on that team for for six years, and they paid me enough to, you know, have a decent life. And you know, any any prize money that I made that I made on top of that, um, you know, is uh, mm. you know, went went into savings. And in the end, it was great. And I'm, I was very fortunate. I, it was very very enjoyable. I was very fortunate. But there's a lot of athletes that that have that have nowhere near as as much luck as I did. Um, for example, I, one of the reasons I retired was because I knew that. As soon as I finished with that team, it'd be very, very difficult to um, to to carve out the same the same kind of career financially, especially when you're on your way down and you and you're getting a bit older. Um, but the um, and then I've forgotten what you said uh, my, about my my athletes. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so I coach Ruth. Ruth's Ruth is the first athlete. Ruth Astle is the first athlete that I coached, and she's um, yeah, she's, she's she's still with us now. She's um, <laughs> I mean she's just done incredibly well to the point where she's she you know she has she has decent decent paying sponsors now and she's she's made a real nice career out of it um mm-hmm. she was you know she's still working she's still working part-time for, for lloyd's bank as well so she's she's a bit of an exception she's she's done incredibly well it's been a very smooth very smooth upward upward mm-hmm. trajectory for her plus she's always had backups with um with you know with with lloyd's bank as well other than that i, I you know i don't i don't coach many pros um have have them in the past kind of more low level pros who kind of who are kind of jumping in from a home age group level mm-hmm. um and they're kind of on that on that cusp uh but yeah it's um yeah so i haven't haven't really got that much experience to be honest with uh mm. with helping other people do this mm. but i mean yeah my yeah my advice really with it is it you just have to you just have yeah you just have to hustle you have to you, you have to really work on your um on your on your profile in the media you know you have to keep on top of your social media i mean if i was still doing it now i'd have a i'll boot up a youtube channel and try and get someone try and get professional to help me with that and follow me around a bit it's a bit of a different bit of a different mm-hmm. game now you have to you have to go really hard into that sort of stuff too because you you know it's all about it's all about giving back to the sponsors and um and creating a good image for yourself mm. making making yourself likable um you know very very likable and approachable um helps a lot as well 
Yeah, um, we, uh, we we had Jack Schofield on recently. Jack's a good triathlete, but he does a lot of that social media work. The, you know, the footage, the video footage with Ruth and and Kat, doesn't he? And um, that helps. I mean, they've they like you said, they both got good sponsorship and they're both getting good results. But having that profile and the quality um, social media footage really helps um, build that when sponsors are looking at them. Yeah, it's not it's not enough just to be a good athlete these days. Mm. Um, it, it used to be, but now you have to you have to have a lot more going on. You have to um, you have to make a big effort with, with all this stuff. Yeah, or you can spend all your time on social media like Lionel and. Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's sure, let's yeah. not let's not get into trouble by going further with that one. Um, so before we move off, I've got a couple more questions. Then um, age groupers have a lot of misconception. We talked about this glamorous life. Any other things that age groupers get wrong when they think about the life of a professional uh, triathlete? I think the. Um, I mean, from what I know, I think it's. You know, a, a lot of um, a lot of the athletes that I coach, they go, they kind of, they a little bit overthink it. They a little bit overthink it. Maybe go go too hard in on diet and um, you know, whatever. I mean, there's lots of things, for example. But I think it's it's probably not as complicated as people make out. It's um, mm-hmm. it's very much you know, train hard, train sparks. So so surround yourself in a great team um, is one of the most important things. Um, but yeah, just, just kind of keeping it simple, training hard and training smart. You have to, you have to enjoy it as well. If you don't enjoy it, like I said before, then you're in trouble. And I think if you add too much, too much of the, uh, if you overthink too much and, um, go too hard into things sometimes, then it kind of, it kind of robs the enjoyment, which then takes away from your performance. So Mm -hmm. I think, I think most pros are very, are very fun, loving, very chilled out, chilled out people who aren't, who aren't really overthinking it. They're just, they're just training hard and getting all of it, turning up every day and getting it done. Um, you, you, and that's kind of, and yeah. that's kind of all there is that's all there is to it really and if you want if you want if you want longevity in the sport you have to be a bit more a bit more relaxed with it and you have to, you have to you have to enjoy it and you have to yeah not go so hard in on the details all the time and rob rob the fun out of it yeah you only have to go to an after party to see that don't you how fun loving they are yeah exactly you, yeah. you definitely wouldn't recognize some of those people the day after a race if you went to the after no. party yeah um, I'll, I'll hide away myself on that one as well well, I, I remember uh, when Alistair and Johnny were coming up to 2012 and, you know, they were posting photographs of, I think Phil Graves was living with them then, and they were posting photographs of 10 shopping bags from Morrison's. They'd just come back and saying, this is this is a week shopping and people picking up and it's saying, well, you're eating, you're having crisps there and uh, you're eating cake. And then Alistair would talk, Johnny would talk about the lady next door who brought them a, a cake around every week, you know, when they came back from races and she looked after them. And I remember Malcolm saying, look, you know, you don't need the stress of trying to have the perfect diet when you're trying to train 35 hours a week and, and go to races. Some, you know, if you, per your comment, if you overstress on too many things, it'll, the whole house will come falling down. Yeah, I think one thing to add to that, I saw, um, I can't remember who it was, but they said, I think it was passed on from Jan Fredeno who saw, um, he he saw the Norwegians having having breakfast at their um, you know mm-hmm. at, at a race one time, and they said it, it looked like a kids' party on the table. <laughs> you know, there's like there's like Nutella cakes, uh, you know, all this milkshakes, etc. And it's just like it's literally it's literally not not what you expect from some of the most thorough, dedicated athletes, you know, obsessed athletes uh, that we have around today. 
Mm, and of course, we all know just by looking at Christian Blumenfeld that he's a bit overweight and he's a junkie boy, isn't he? Not. If you see him with, yeah, his, yeah. See him with his shirt off and he's definitely not like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was your favourite style of racing then? French Grand Prix, WTS, 70.3, Ironman, and why? It's a funny one because it, it, ITU um, did me well at that period because it was, you know, you, you were looked after by a federation. It was, it was very, very short, fast, exciting racing. Um, the rest of it, that probably was my favourite, by the way, and it probably suited me the best. But I also, I like 70.3. It's, um, mm. you, you, can, you, can, you can still race it. Um, it's still kind of epic. You know, even if you're, uh, even if you're, if, even even if you're pro and you, and you do this regularly, it's still kind of epic. It's a, it's a, it's a serious challenge. It takes you to the well. What I really, what I really love, I I really loved an Ironman when it went well. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to get wrong. The, the swim is long. The bike is, the bike is very long. And, and by the last 50 or 60 k, I don't care what anyone says or who you are. You're looking forward to getting off the bike and, and finishing it there and starting running. We're not built to time trial for 180 k. And the run, if you get it right and you can run the whole way, it's it's an amazing feeling when you cross that line that you've it's an amazing feeling of accomplishment. And I think it's more it's more one of those things you enjoy a little bit more afterwards, looking back at it, the memories and the uh, the buzz the buzz you get from from uh, you know going under eight hours in a um, and running a two forty marathon or something like that. That was some of my best times in my, in the sport as well. I really enjoyed that. And what one thing I like about Ironman as well is you you can never you 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 can never you can never you can never make an assumption about how how anyone else is feeling or what's going to happen in the race especially when you get to that stage in the marathon it just opens up a lot of opportunities like the amount of times i've gone from fifth to second in um mm-hmm. you know or, or i didn't win nine men but i've got a lot of seconds from fifth to second in the last 10k because because someone's absolutely exploded in front of you who was who was 10 minutes before at the start of the lap you know that's a real that's a real buzz, and it's quite very exciting uh, racing if you're an athlete. I think f- f- for listeners to be going, oh yeah, well it's all right for you saying go under eight hours. I'd love to go under ten hours, but you can take out the, the time there and substitute that for any time you like. When you're having a good day in an Ironman and it's going along well, you should savor that because they don't happen very often. Um, and, no, when, and and back to your point, when you're having a bad day, and I've seen enough people at the front end of races. That, that are extremely talented, absolutely suffering like anybody else that's out on that course. I've seen you, I've seen Alistair, I've seen Phil Graves, I've seen yeah. Lionel Sanders, I've seen Leander and, and you know, and um, Julie Dibbons and Chrissy suffering like dogs. And they go through exactly the same as anybody else doing that race, don't they? Yeah, they do. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's part of, it's part of getting the training right and getting, and getting the race right as well. I mean, there's, you know, there's many many athletes who are better than me that I've messed it up. That I've, me- I've messed it up big time and, and and ended up walking the way back from the from the energy lab. <laughs> um, and it's it's a completely. I mean, th- those are the hard races. The easy races are where it all goes right and you're trotting along at three fifty per k pace. I mean, those are the those are the, those are the easy days. Um, but the hardest ones are when you have to walk back. It's mentally very hard. It's it's very very hard to pick yourself up from as well if you're a pro. Retiring from any occupation is is a massive mental change for people. When you go from being an athlete, being out there in the thick of it and racing, and you either have to give up that career or you realise it's coming to an end and you sort of you know you're almost pushed into it. Um, 
what was that like for you, Will? Did you did you find it really difficult to cope with, or did you find it was an easy transition to go into coaching? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, my my transition was seamless because I, I was coaching about twenty athletes before I even retired. Um, I went straight into a, a successful business. I was busy, you know, I was busy right from when I retired, you know, straight away, right the way through to another year. Just, just I'm not the emphasis. My athletes are the emphasis. Um, I could when I retired as well. Roof, um, Roof won Ironman Hawaii overall age group. Um, mm-hmm. So, so we got we got uh, we got we got a lot of coaching inquiries and a lot of recognition from that from the off. So the the, the transition from athletes coach was seamless, and it was also a no brainer. Especially since I got kicked off of uh, BMC VFit for not um, well seven years, you know, six years on team—that's enough. Um, but ultimately, I was slowing down. Um, it's a it's a good question because you know there was no. I mean, I, I had a successful career. I was very satisfied with my career. I, I even told my team manager he's made the right decision. Uh, I was more than happy to step away. I what well, didn't love it as much as I did when I started. So no problem. I'm also in this day and age. You're also very, very aware of mental health. Um, it's a, it's a hot topic um, right now. Obviously, I don't suffer from depression or anything like that. But I, I do, I do. I was kind of focusing on my mental state and making sure that I was kind of looking after myself. And uh, I was also very aware that when athletes retire, they often go through a, a, a phase of um, post-athlete depression. I call it, where they, mm-hmm. you know, they've gone from, they've gone from the highest. You know, having this awesome job, really. You know, a lot of big release. You know, you've always got the endorphins flying around because you're always, you're always exercising three times a day. Massive sense, you know, big sense of purpose. People look up to you. To all of a sudden, no one, no one, no one really cares, and, and no one really cares anymore. And uh, you know, you, you're not getting that release. You don't have to go training. No one's forcing you out the door. And um, I think, yeah, I was very aware of. You know, I need to look after myself and keep myself moving. I need to keep. I need to keep fit. I need to keep. I need to keep setting myself goals. I need to keep, keep keep getting out the door. But that said, there are. I mean, w- when I haven't been doing that, I quickly slide into uh, slide into a bit of a shit mental state. And um, yeah, I no, it's normally short lived because I pick myself up. I, I get out the door. I actually looking. I've hurt myself. I've hurt my ankle, and it's my lower legs are kind of on their way out in quite a bad way. So I'm not running anymore, which is the most easiest. It's, it's the easiest thing for me to do. It's the easiest thing for me to train for. Plus, I'm I'm pretty. I'm a I'm quite a good talented runner. I've still got I've still got legs. Um so i I'm looking at I'm looking at entering the uh dirty dirty reaver, the two hundred K gravel race. Mm-hmm. Um and the Fred Witten. Um I'm literally gonna book that um today and uh you know, set something else, set another goal and get on it and keep keep moving because I don't wanna know what happens when I stop and I can't do anything. Yeah. Um there was something else I was going to say there, but I'll I'll come back to that. Hopefully, I'll remember it. You talk about I always remember that was your thing running, and I know you just said there with doing Ironman three point eight k is a long way. It's only it's only an hour for for someone like you, less fifty minutes. Um, but still, I know that you've always enjoyed the running, so that must be a hard thing to swallow. That you 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 know f- for having been a a keen runner and put 20, 20 plus years of solid running into your legs. You know, those hundred K weeks you did when you were 19 or 20 plus all the, the training for um, the longer stuff. Um, it does take its toll, doesn't it? So how, how, how are you coping with not being able to, and is it, is it frustrating? Are you on a stop start or are you sort of resigned to the fact that you just need to be a bit kinder to yourself? I think it's been when I, um, it's really easy for me to be honest, to go and do an hour running a day and 
do a couple of hours at weekend, chuck in some sessions in there as well. So last year I did Manchester Marathon and I, I ran 220. I did a half-assed effort and ran 223. Um, it's really nice to have that winter focus to just um, to get stuck into. You know, it's compared to what I used to do, it's a piece of piss. Um, I'm not going to be able to do that this year because I've, I've, had, I've twisted my ankle too many times. You know, it's a bit screwed and it, need, it needs, a lot of, needs a lot of rehab to, to, to get back. I will get it back, but it's definitely a sign that things are getting more and more difficult Difficult there and they'll continue to. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a shame. I like it's it's just so easy to be able to put on your shoes and get out the door, whereas jumping on the bike, it's not it's not as appealing, especially this time of year. But I think you have to, I just have to focus on uh, focus on rehab and keep on keep on hammering that thing till I can't walk. <laughs> Pretty much. There's there's a couple. Of, one of the lads in Yorkshire knows a good ankle surgeon that that you probably recommend to you. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, I've been thinking about contacting him actually. <laughs> um. So talking about your coaching. You've obviously got a lot of experience as an athlete at the highest level, and you've you've had. I know you worked with Dan for a long time, and you you talked about uh, working with Luke Van Leer. Um, how have those experiences that you had as an athlete shaped how you coach your athletes? Yeah, it's a um, good question. I mean, yeah, as I said, as you said, I've got I've got a lot of experience from a lot of different coaches, and of course, I learned something from from all of them. I also learned. A lot about myself and what it took, what it took me to get to um, to get to the highest level. But then, of course, when things start to get difficult and you have to train a bit smarter, I also learn learn a lot a lot there as well. But to be honest, I think one of one of my strengths as a coach, I'm I'm very I'm quite empathetic. Um, I don't like, as far as I'm concerned, it, it's about keeping you know it's about busy people. You know, I'm coaching mostly people who are living in the city with busy, stressful jobs. Most of them have families. And it's for me, my focus is about keeping them, yeah, training, training consistently average for a long, long period of time. Mm-hmm. And if we can, if we can do that, then, then they're going to have great seasons. Uh, I think, I think that's what most people are missing. You know, they might train hard, but then they're not training hard consistently. And um, that's what I try and do really. I try to keep them. I try, I figure out the stimulus that they need, that they each need when I first start with them. and we. I kind of I go away, get creative with it, and try to try to attack that in training as much as I can, doing the right things, the right sessions at the right time for them, um, and just try and be a nice guy along with it. Try try to support them, try to encourage them. If they if they're going through a rough rough patch with work or family and they need something adjusting, then that's mm-hmm. great. But it's um, I think for me, it's I, I really uh, I've, what I've done well, I think. Um, without blowing my own trumpet, is we started Riot Racing Club, which is a uh, which you know I put I put it all under one banner and, and a team, and I've I've connected a lot of these guys up, so we have a lot of a lot a lot of great friendships within the group, and we have a great great atmosphere um, team atmosphere when we go to races as well. So that's been um, yeah, it's been good. I try to try and put them on the best plan possible for what they need to do. Try to uh, and try to help them um, enjoy it as much as possible along the way. Mm. So that does sound like those lessons you've learned about not not getting into the weeds too much with some of the technical stuff, being consistent, having fun, um, thinking of the bigger picture are some of the key lessons that you try to pass on. And I, I'm, you know, personally, I, I I'm probably on the same page as you there uh, because I do think that a lot of people get too much into the weeds about power data, about whether they're hitting zones absolutely precise. You know, I, I tend to think 
you might be precise on your zones, but then if you're not going to, if you're only getting five hours sleep a night, then what's the point? You know, you might as well yeah. just be, be, be just get yourself in the right ballpark with your training zone and get eight hours sleep a night and you probably end up with a better result. Yeah. I'm a big, um, I don't know if you follow him on Twitter. You're on Twitter. I think a bit Steve mm-hmm. Magnus. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really enjoy following Steve Magnus. He's a very no bullshit, no bullshit guy. He debunks a lot, a, a lot of this stuff kind of focus on, like you said, the bigger picture and what's, what's actually important for going fast. Yes. Uh, I just bought his book actually, um, whatever it's called. And um, yeah, I can't remember what it's called. Sorry about that. But well, it's because, good, well, um, actually, well, actually I will be asking you for a book recommendation to go in the show notes. We'll so park that one and then let me have that and we'll make sure it goes in the show notes. But he, he's written some books with Brad Stolberg as well about, and Brad Stolberg's yeah. stuff is about that whole holistic thing and, and high performance human stuff. So um, yeah, I'd recommend those ones as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I listen, I actually, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts as well. Um, I really like, yeah, there's, yeah, I think they have a podcast as well, actually. That I don't, I don't really listen to much, but there's, there's all sorts of, book, there's all sorts of good podcasts out there that are quite inspiring as a coach as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe we can list a few of those. Obviously this one will be at the top. Yeah. Thanks. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there's one more thing to talk about, Will. We've touched on it. You've been to Kona. I've been going there for a bit. We've sat and enjoyed a beer there. Um, it seems like things are going to be changing a little bit um, going forwards. And uh, I'm wondering, you you prompted me to say, let's let's talk about this. So what are your initial thoughts about um, about all of this? Do you think it's a good thing? Do you think Iron Man are, uh, are missing a trick or just losing the plot? I think it's a nightmare, to be honest. Um... I came out of Twitter hibernation the other day and said something on Twitter about it. Um, but it's, I think it's a disaster. I think obviously, I mean, I'm not even sure. I, 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 I men have barely announced anything. I think they said, they said something yesterday. I didn't, I didn't, didn't, I didn't read it all, but they've, yeah, they've they, did, confirmed, yeah. they confirmed there's going to be changes, but it's, I think, I think they're in trouble anyway. They've, they've been in trouble for a while. I man, I think they've committed to having separate days for racing. I think, uh, I think there's too many people qualifying for for Hawaii because they're probably trying to they're trying to maximise their profits. Um, I think what they've done, obviously, for people who who aren't aware, is they they've decided to alternate alternate years in Kona, male and female. So the females are going to race are going to race Kona in 2023, and the guys are going to go and race somewhere else. I don't think it's been announced, but probably in Nice mm-hmm. um, in September. And then the following year, they're going to they're going to they're, they're going to swap. So the men are going to go to Kona, and the women are going to go to go to Nice, probably. By the sounds of it. But I think I think it, the biggest the biggest disaster is separating the men and the men and the women. If you can imagine the uh, the triathlon power couples who are going um, who are not going to be able to travel together. I think I had lunch with Ruth um, just today, and she's worried about you know people losing interest in 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 the ladies' race, obviously. Mm-hmm. A thousand, a thousand five hundred ladies going to Kona. Um, no, for a start, there's going to be far, far fewer men there to there to watch and support around the course and uh, and add to that atmosphere. Plus, you know, the will there be as much focus on the women's races as, as there was before, and what what kind of good is that going to do their sport? Mm-hmm. And then, just yeah, it's. Uh, I just think it's a it's it's a, it's a real shame that they're going to separate those races and not. And I've, I've I've wanted it for a while, but I I really wish that they would just move. They would, I mean, it's unpopular opinion for some, but I I wish they would just move away from Kona now and just alternate this around the world. 
Um, you're you're a big Kona fan. You go there a lot. Um, I I am too, kind of not as much, not as not so much. I enjoy. Um, I appreciate the the uh, majestic island and and all that and uh, and the magic around the race. But I think you know Ironman's still a big brand and people still a, still a big brand. Everyone wants to wants to go and qualify and race at the highest level at World Championships. Mm-hmm. And I think you can be doing that. You can be do, you can still be doing that around the world, but in a sustainable way. Um, you know, we don't have to. If you go to Nice, you don't have to. Um, you don't have to pay eight thousand pounds. You know, six thousand pounds for accommodation, two thousand pounds for your flights. You can get there and back in in an, in an, in an hour and a half if you're living in the UK. Well, I think a, it's, yeah. it feels like a much more sustainable way to run the World Championships. Um, big towns, big towns that can handle six thousand athletes or whatever it is. I think they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot. I, I think you made some great points there, Will, and I don't. I don't think there is an easy or a right answer to this. I, you know, I I get the fact that everybody says Kona's the Kona's the iconic location, but it is in the middle of the Pacific. It's a climate that it, it suits some people and not others. You know, if you look at the stats, I think Chris McCormack made a big thing that he was the heaviest athlete ever to win in Kona, and he's like seventy-seven kilos. You know, if you're a big athlete and you can win Ironman races elsewhere. You're going to struggle in Kona just because of the heat and humidity. Um, you talk about sustainability. That's a huge thing now, isn't it? Fuel costs, um, carbon neutral, carbon zero, you know, all of these targets that COP, the COP, various COP um, meetings are trying to put out. And yet we're encouraging thousands of people to fly thousands of miles to the middle of the Pacific and land on a small island where you know, not only has the race grown, but also the population of the island has grown over the last few years and the infrastructure um, has grown a little bit, but not necessarily enough to take on all the athletes. At the same time, I can see the people saying, but I've always wanted to race in Kona, you know, and that's it now. If I can't race in Kona, then it's lost that magic and it's not going to be the same as racing in um, France or in, in, um, you know, some of the other iconic locations that Ironman have got. Um, and and I, t- I take your point entirely about um, how will the female race be viewed? You know, we want to try and grow that side of it. Ironman have made a big thing, and you know, and, and so PTO. And yet, if you place it on the on on the Pacific Island in the middle of October, um, are people going to be quite as interested if there aren't any male pros racing as well? You know, that's that's a yeah. sad thing to say, but I think it's also a sad fact of life, isn't it? Um, by the way, people will love people will love the uh, men's race in, in Nice. They'll be they'll be all over that. People people might fly out and watch it specifically. Mm-hmm. It's an hour and a half away, and, and it's one thousand pounds for seven days combination. Yep. Well, and I mean, there's been a lot of talk over the years, hasn't there, about this idea of rotating it around, and it's always come back to well, it's 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 got to be Kona or nothing. Um, but but nothing is ever set in stone forever. And the world's changing, and times are changing, and maybe this, maybe this is an opportunity for change. But I'm not sure this is the right way to go about that change either. And if you just, you know, by the time this podcast uh, people listening, this news will be seven days old, and there'll be an awful lot of Twitter words published, and a lot of Twitter anger and social media anger vented, um, and there'll be some there'll be some sensible commentary in there, but that'll get lost versus all the people that just want to go to Kona. And I do feel sorry for people perhaps who have entered and got their slot to go in 2023 and now find that that's actually, and maybe even book their accommodation early and now finding that's all going to be unravelling for them. 
I think it's, I mean, I was, you're like, from a, from a sustainability point of view, I mean, I kind of, I also mean just like sustainability of Iron Man. Mm-hmm. I think they've, they've pissed off enough people now with, 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 with various changes, uh, you know, and selling a, selling a Kona race and, and it wound up being in Nice, for example, um, date changes, like day changes. I think if they, and then finally separating, separating the women's and the men's and the men's field in, into different dates, different countries. I think people people want to go to Kona and they want to race that race the you know race the race the legendary world championships. But I think it's not going to be there if, if if this if this sort of stuff keeps on happening and there'll be no there'll be no world championships anyway unless mm-hmm. it just unless something happens and they and they rotate it around the world and keep it all together and you know bring back the extortionate price you know not be in a position where they have to charge people extortionate prices to uh, for accommodation and and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and flights, etc. I think people will would get over it fairly fast and just look forward to racing the world championships wherever it is, um, if it's whether it's Kona or not. My my wife made the interesting point because she's you know she's been going to Kona for for many years and she knows quite a lot of people locally who who live on the island and who uh, who are friends. And it seems like I've reading between the lines. It seems like nobody consulted the people of Kona locally about what they thought about two days of racing. Um, there was a lot of people I know that were quite happy with it, but also obviously some people who who weren't happy with it. Nobody's really consulted the race, the the athletes, either whether they're professionals or or age groupers. Nobody's consulted the volunteers and the people who give their time freely. And I've done that for a number of years, and and you know we did it for both races this year, and that's you know that's an awful lot of work because it's not just two days. You if you're volunteering the day before each race, then you're basically on the go for four for four days and it's hard work standing out there in that you know you've you've been there you've seen it and from both sides it's hard work standing out there in that in that climate for eight hours sure giving is. your time freely um and she was saying well what why didn't they just do focus groups why don't they do some little focus groups and discuss with people and find out what people really want and make decisions based on informed opinion rather than just a, a sort of a seems like a knee-jerk commercial reaction because you'd think that a big company like that would have some sort of public facing um empathy wouldn't you yeah for sure yeah maybe you know maybe they know what they're doing and it'll, it'll all work out but yeah that's uh it, i don't like the way it's going to be honest well, he's, I've, I've met Andrew Messick a few times and I've chatted with him on this podcast and he's he's done Ironman racing, you know, before he was even CEO, he'd done Ironman races and he's a smart man. He's got, a, you know, he's he's a McKinsey um, graduate. So, but he's also a hard-nosed businessman and I'm, I'm, I wonder maybe sometimes whether he feels like he's been pulled in several different directions because he's he's probably got his own passion for the sport, but then he's got, he's got what they're investors in iron man want to do and they've paid an awful lot of money maybe overpaid for that brand and they need to see some value out of it and maybe that's part of the problem is that private equity owns it rather than people who invested in the sport um yeah i think it's yeah you have to remember it's a, it, it, it is a business um i mm. think i think it's a bad business choice as well personally but uh maybe short term it, it works it works well but long term i don't think it's it's a good uh good option well, we should perhaps regroup in a few months, Will, and have another discussion to see what's happened then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, Will, it's been great to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Um, best wishes with the coaching. Um, Ruth goes from strength to strength. I saw she won Ironman Israel last week. So, uh, you know, she's continuing that good run of form that she's had. 
Um, so good work there. Good work with Riot Racing Squad. And uh, look forward to seeing you out there sometime. Maybe we'll see you on the start line at another Outlaw event. Sounds great. Thanks for that. Appreciate the chat. Enjoy it. Most, you're most welcome, Will. Take care. Best wishes. Cheers. Thank you again to Will for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. As usual, there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. To make sure that you don't miss any episode in the future, please go along to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click the subscribe button. Please don't forget to check out the links for joining the SWAT community in the show notes. That's all for now. Have a great week and I will see you on the next episode.